Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Dana Samuelson from amergold.com. Dana Samuelson, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, guys. I really appreciate having the chance to speak with you. Now, how did you get to this point in in your life where um, you was became interested in the financial markets and uh, it became your passion? Well, uh, I got out of college in 1980 with a German degree, uh, which allowed me to graduate with my class uh, on schedule, which I wouldn't have if I had continued with my psycho- psychology degree, which I didn't want to get a degree in. So in graduating with a degree in German in 1980 was just like graduating with any degree in 2008 or 2009. No one was being hired. Uh, Inflation was sky high, interest rates were sky high, the economy was in trouble. Uh, But my brother had a job working in a precious metals and rare coin company in Houston, Texas, and they were handling tons, literally tons of physical silver because the silver price had hit a record high of $50 an ounce and they needed someone in their vault to help work uh, with the guy that they had as a backup. So I was hired because I could be trusted. Wow. So for, yeah, so for two years, I counted, shipped, and weighed uh, precious metals. And I got my lucky break uh, in 1983 when the buyer for Jim Blanchard, who was the gentleman most responsible for the private re-legalization of gold ownership uh, in 1974, was looking for a young numismatist trainee, which is a rare coin appraiser or a grader. We value the state of the condition of the coins. So I was hired to be a numismatist or I was trained to appraise rare US gold and silver coins. And that led to a job at the Jim's trading desk, which led me to spend about 50, $60 million of Jim's money every year in the mid eighties with the industry. And I got to know everybody. And that's how I really got my lucky break. So if it was a kitchen, I started at the kitchen sink and I moved my way up to line cook and then to head chef and then to run in the restaurant, basically. Now, that that is some serious history. I mean, that was Bunker Hunt when they were trying to corner the market and you were right there. Right. Yeah, I watched it. I watched it. That's incredible. That's incredible. So you, you the, the talking of uh, frenzied speculation, we probably hadn't seen anything. Well, we've seen the dot com boom and bust, which is obviously fairly massive. But I mean, that must have just been an incredible time because the information flow wasn't what it was back then, and um, it must have just felt like. Uh, it, it, it just, I, I just can't imagine that being your first indoctrination into the market. And then obviously after that, there was a big correction in silver. Um, what made you think that it was something that you should stay with, given the fact that you're, that you, you came into it at a peak and then it started to fall from that point on? Did you just get the bug from, from learning about different coins and being a new numismatist or, or, or what was it? Well, I was really more of a coin dealer or a coin trader uh, than a, just a metals buyer and seller. 
So we handled a lot of vintage U.S. gold and silver coins for years at Blanchard & Company, and we still do an American gold exchange. I started my own company in 1998, which is 25 years ago, and we deal in vintage uh, gold and silver coins. So half of my business is buying and selling vintage uh, coins, and I go to coin shows, which are professional uh, trade uh, expositions with mostly other dealers uh, you know, six, eight, 10 times a year at different cities. We all have to get together physically because that's the nature of the product where we look at the coins, we value them based on condition, survival rates, uh, supply and demand, uh, and other market factors. So that's, that's really my bread and butter part of my business. Doing bullion trading on this is the other half of our business. And that's pretty simple because everything's perfect. We get it straight from the various mints that manufacture it. Premiums are very competitive most of the time. So there's always a supply you know, uh, issue. We can hedge our inventory on the futures markets to uh, mitigate risk in a falling and a rising market. So the, there's two separate uh, entities that I do as part of my business. The vintage coins, which are more supply and demand. Uh, based on what was made, what survives, how many people want them today, where the pricing is, and then bullion, which is what people want, just gold and silver for gold and silver's sake. So the the, the numismatic stuff presumably is not as fungible or not at all as fungible as the as the regular bullion dealing. That'd be fair? No, actually it is. Since the late 80s, we have had some independent grading services that the dealer community has accepted that evaluates the quality of the coins. So we have um, a constant, which is the condition of the coins, because the coins are valued on their um, the, the number made, the number that survive, and then the various degrees of surviving condition. So a coin can be made and be perfect, but it goes into a bag with a bunch of other coins. They, they rub against each other. Some come out of the bag still perfect. Some come out with with more scratches on them, we call bag marks uh, than others. And some come out with a lot of different with a lot of bag marks on them. So those are all uncirculated coins, but they're different states of preservation, uncirculated, choice, uncirculated, gem uncirculated. And then there's different degrees of wear if they get used and put into circulation. Some have minimal wear, some have heavy wear, and then some are altered. They're either polished or they're scratched. So um, with grading services that establish the condition, which is the, really the only variable that uh, the public uh, has to trust a dealer on, with an independent grading company or two of them to grade these coins, it took the guesswork out for the public. And it's a very vibrant, you know, multi-billion dollar business every year. So that, that's really interesting because that answers the question that whether the market is actually going up or down your business would be, as you as you see uh, people want to trade, they will trade as the price is going down. Maybe, you know, they want to liquidate and buy something else. And if the price is going up, perhaps, you know, they want to invest in it. But I, I, tend, to, I tend to think of this type of investment as a very long-term buy and hold. Do you find that, that when the prices are going down, you get more activity and when prices are going up, people sort of stand to one side and wait again for it to dip. Um, are there those type of cycles or is it fairly consistent? 
<laughs> well, the, the public, uh, the human condition is pretty interesting. Uh, we have uh, a lot of very sophisticated and intelligent clients in our database. Uh, we've been recommended by some uh, very um, high-end newsletter, uh, financial newsletter writers. So our, our clientele tends to be pretty sophisticated and they do like to buy the dips. So uh, especially in a rising market where we get a dip, like we've just gone through in, in the gold price uh, following you know, the bank failures here in the US in March and April, gold hit close to a record high. And uh, now that it's dipping, the, the smart money's coming in and taking advantage of that. On the other hand, we have a lot of clients that aren't as sophisticated that tend to chase the market. So we tend to get more buying activity overall when the market's running higher, but it's usually big, uh, small orders in, in bigger volume. You know, we tend to get big orders in small volume when the market's uh, in a dip. Follow me? Yeah, yeah, I do. Yeah. And as far what as, I'm oh, sorry. I was going to say, is without wishing to sound disparaging, which is definitely not the case, would you, would you describe any of your clients as doomsday preppers? <laughs> Uh, yes, yes. So we have a we have a wide variety of of, of clientele. Uh, we have people that don't trust the government at all. That are worried about, very worried about the financial system. You, you have clients that trust the government. Uh, some, but not many. <laughs> well, we we cater to you know as many different people as we can do business with. You know why limit ourselves? So, and we run into all types. So we we have it from the gamut of people that just don't want anything to do with the government. They want their money out of this system. They want something that they can hold, that they can trust. You know, gold and silver have no counterparty risk. And it's one of the only assets that's immediately liquid to a, a ready buyer uh, when you present it for sale. You know, virtually every other major asset class in the world has counterparty risk or some liquidity issues at times. Uh, you know, real estate's a great hedge against inflation, but real estate is not liquid. And there are times you can't get a loan against your real estate when the banking uh, standards tighten up like we're going through right now in the U.S. It's harder to get a loan, even though that the rates are high. So, um, you know, my, my clientele is a lot of wonderful people. We have a lot of small business owners, uh, you know, that are independent thinkers that, uh, you know, want to have a hedge. And then we have, you know, very wealthy people as well who just, you know, want to have a portion of their assets out of the system. Have you ever seen a financial market as or a financial environment as wild as the one we're currently living through? Well, it just keeps getting wilder by the year. It's crazy since the great financial crisis and the U.S., uh, you know, the Fed deciding to be the backstop of the world. We haven't had what I would call free markets. We've had more Fed controlled markets. Uh, the Potem Potemkin market, some might say. Yeah, yeah, we haven't allowed for you know businesses that should fail to fail because they would damage the system too much. It's we've got uh, more and more uh, assets concentrated in a, in a tighter, in a smaller space. Well, we five or six gigantic banks in the U.S. where we used to have a much more vibrant, uh, medium-sized and large-sized banking business. So you know, and the wealth is concentrated. 50% of the wealth is in 1% of the population. And more importantly, we haven't allowed the system to clear out the steam like we have had in the past with uh, the governments around the world stimulating 
making sure that the failures that should happen don't happen. And it just keeps popping bubbles up and the bubbles just keep getting bigger because they can print more and more money at will. And that's what they've been doing. Look at the debt loads around the world. They're all at record levels, no matter where you look. Does it, does it not seem to you, as it certainly does to me, that we're, we seem to be perilously close to the end game of this whole, this whole sequence? Well, I hate to be that guy, but I've never been more worried about the financial system holding together than I am today. Uh, you know, with the U.S. debt at $32 trillion now, and our debt just jumped almost a trillion dollars in a month now that the U.S. Uh, debt ceiling has been resolved for the time being. But think about this. Between the 1790s and 1996, the U.S. accumulated $5 trillion in debt by 1996. Since then, 28 years later, our debt is six times higher, multiplied sixfold. And when you get a chart that starts to go parabolically higher, I mean, that's typically when things break. And now we've got higher interest rates. So the debt service just for the U.S. debt has gone from 500 billion a year to over a trillion a year. It may be a trillion and a half a year, more than defense spending here in the U.S., which has never happened before. We're close to a debt spiral that will be unrecoverable without a serious uh, devaluation of the dollar, the purchasing power of the currencies, which is what, of course, inflation is or something breaking. And, you know, that's why we're seeing other nations shunning the dollar and looking for ways out to, to get into trading with other countries in their own currencies, which is what the BRICS are starting to really coalesce around, which is, you know, could be the end of the dollar as we know it, as the world's reserve currency. I mean, it's always a tricky one to talk about timing because it's, it's always the perpetual bugbear for any market strategist and analyst. But do you have a feeling for how long, let's say, you would you would expect the dollar to remain in in pole position as the as the petrodollar currency and primary reserve currency of the world? Or do you have any do you have a, any kind of gut feel on that? Well, timing is is really hard to to say. It's like how did you go bankrupt? Well, slowly at first, right? And then suddenly it happened. But what's happening is you know the dollar share of um, Markets worldwide as a reserve currency has dropped from about 70% down to about 60%, 58% now. Uh, we are seeing the BRICS nations wanting to get out of the dollar. Um, but you said petrodollar. The, the petrodollar is over. It's over. And that to me is the biggest change that we're seeing right now. You know, from, from 1974 until 2022, Saudi Arabia sold oil worldwide in dollars. And at Davos in this, this January, February in 2023, just six months ago, they said that they would take other currencies. And they're selling oil, oil in yuan to China. But more importantly, China has become Saudi Arabia's biggest customer. They buy more oil from Saudi Arabia than they sell to, I'm sorry, they sell more, China buys more oil from Saudi Arabia than um, the US and 
the European nations buy from Saudi Arabia. And remember, at a point in time in 2016, the U.S. was a net exporter of oil. So all Saudi Arabia is really doing is they're pivoting from their old best customer to their new best customer. And they're doing it in a meaningful way, investing tens of billions of dollars in several major petrochemical facilities in China. And now they're, so the petrodollar as we know it is actually over. Although I don't know most people realize it at this point in time, it's coming to a dramatic close right now. The question is what other currency will be viable if there's a challenge to the dollar in earnest. And, you know, world reserve currency status tends to outlive the peak of the power of that country. Because you could argue that the, the UK and sterling had that privilege until the end of the Second World War. Right, right. But Britain's power, excuse me, gentlemen, uh, clearly was waning, you know, at the end of World War One, going sure. into, you know, in that space between World War One and World War Two. But the but we've got, a lo- we've got a lovely flag. I mean, you can't you can't take that against us. <laughs> no, no, I, uh, nothing personal, gentlemen. Nothing personal. No, we're we're all for facts here. There's no there's no egos at all. But yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, talking about um, the way that the dollar is moving, just in the very short term, we've seen um, it it lurching lower, and this is with the expectation that the Fed are going to raise by twenty five basis points next week again. I know we're getting into sort of very micro um, analysis here, but what it seems to me looking at, I mean, I'm a chartist, so I look technically at what's going on. And I I, I think it looks like the dollar is going to be going down quite aggressively, which is something we've been talking about on the show for, for quite some time. Um, <clears throat> we weren't drawn into that big breakout to the upside, um, which took it to sort of 115 against the, uh, the dollar index. Um, and so gold is hovering below some extremely important technical levels, and it's not going to take much to push it through. So we could be in a very, very interesting time um, from the point of view of precious metals in general. Although, to be fair, they're not all moving together. Silver is still underperforming from a very long-term perspective. That $50 that you mentioned at the top of the show, which is still quite far away. And it's it's the strange thing with silver that it is it is still so far away from that high. And I wondered what, what you thought about its prospects for outperforming gold. Do you think that's a possibility or do you think gold will always stay in, in that pole position? No, I definitely think you're spot on with silver having a... Uh potential to outperform gold percentage-wise and by quite a bit. So what's really happening is you 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 explained it, uh, in my opinion, perfectly. The dollar was extremely high last year because of the um, interest rate differential. The Fed led uh, raising rates higher faster. So the dollar caught a bid. Also, was a, we were the safest economy last year. Now we're correcting down. The dollar's testing 100 on the US dollar index, which is a major support level. We're seeing the U.S. economy showing some weakness. Manufacturing is weakening. Employment, which is every, what everybody's watching, is the last thing to go in any economic cycle when uh, the last thing you see roll over is employment because employers want to hold employees as long as they can. They're hard to get right now, but it's the fastest way to cut overhead. So what's been happening in the bigger picture, let me step back a little bit, you know, central banks were net buyers of gold in the 70s during the last inflationary period when gold ran from about $50 an ounce all the way to 800 
and silver ran from a couple of bucks to 50. From 1983 to 2010, central banks were net sellers of gold, but following the great financial crisis, central banks have once again become net buyers of gold, and they've been net buyers at record levels over the last two years. And I believe that's all because of the debt explosion that we've seen over the last 12, 13 years, and central banks wanting to hedge their bets against other uh, bonds that they hold from other countries and other currencies that they hold from other countries, just in case. So gold is catching the fear bid. And that's why it's trading near record highs. While silver, let's, let me back up a little bit more on, on gold. Gold is true, compact, portable, transferable wealth. A hundred ounces of gold is about the size of a paperback novel and weighs eight pounds. You can put it in your pockets and carry it around and no one would know you had it. And it's $200,000 worth of value. That same $200,000 worth of value in silver, you'd need a wheelbarrow and a couple of really big muscular guys to carry this stuff around. It would take up a lot more room, which is why gold is catching the fear bid because of its ease of um, storage and compactness. Now, silver, tends to lag when gold runs, but then it can play catch up with a vengeance. So when we went through the last easing cycle, which was modest in 2019, when bond yields fell and the Fed cut rates in response to a global economic slowdown, you know, gold went from about a, over, finally over a 1375 hard top that it could not get past for six years following the great financial run and correction all the way to about $1,700. Still, silver languished at under 15. Then COVID hit and gold ran from about 1,600 all the way to to a little over 2,000. Silver still lagged and couldn't get over $18, but when it finally took off, it went to 29 on a bullet, which was like a 40% gain. So that's the kind of move that silver will make when gold leads strongly enough. And right now gold is still catching the fear bid. I think at this gold price of around $1,950 an ounce, silver should be $35 an ounce, not $25 an ounce. And if you measure the silver value to gold using the gold to silver ratio, which is simply dividing the gold price by the silver price, the ratio today is about 83 to one. I could be off on a by a point or two. That ratio on average over the last 20 years has been about 65 to 70 to one, which means silver is undervalued relative to gold in my opinion. So silver lags and then it plays catch up and it can disappoint you, but we're also seeing silver in physical supply deficit now because of the need for silver in EVs and solar panels. There's more and more need for it. And there's really not a lot of great silver mines out there. Silver tends to be mined more as a byproduct of mining other metals. So I do like silver, as, a, as an investment opportunity at this price, especially relative to gold, I think it's already undervalued by about 30%. And I think if gold does what I think it'll do on the next easing cycle, which is when gold really can catch a strong tailwind, when interest rates fall, when bond yields fall, gold loves that. Uh, gold gets to 22 to $2,400 like I think it could, silver will be probably north of $50 an ounce, would be more than a double right now, where the gold price might be a 10 or a 20% gain. I saw an absolutely incredible um, stat. I, I, I would imagine you're familiar with some guys in Liechtenstein called Incrementum. 
Yes. They do this in, in gold. We in Goldweed Trust Report and Ronnie Sturfley. There's, there's a, a slide of theirs that we've um, liberated for some of our own presentations. And it's um, it's a chart of market capitalization in dollar in billions of dollars as at end May 23. The silver mining industry does not basically appear above the y-axis of this chart. The gold mining industry appears a bit. Then you've got the S&P 500 energy sector. I'll leave the next one till last, you've got Apple. So the, the market cap of Apple was, at the time this chart was done, $2.7 trillion. And coming in at $1.7 trillion was the combined total of silver, gold, copper, precious and diversified metals mining industry stocks. So in other words, at the time this was done, which is only um, a month ago, you could buy Apple or you could buy every company in the silver, gold, copper, precious and diversified metals mining sector and have a trillion dollars left over. <laughs> I'm, I, I don't know about you, but I, I find that just a staggering comparison. I mean, I'm, that's not to downplay Apple, but you know, you can't have Apple products without silver, for example. <laughs> no, I agree. The, the amount of wealth that has been created over the last 20 or 30 years because computers have allowed us to just exponentially uh, enhance our ability to grow wealth uh, is off the charts. And the amount of wealth that's out there to buy real tangible assets like real estate or uh, physical precious metals or oil, for example. I mean, it's just, it's, it's crazy how much money there is. You know, you, I, what, Bill Gates could probably buy a small island in Greece if he wanted to. It's crazy. Right. But you you mentioned the, the the word what was it tangible, but I'd say also the word enduring is is relevant because this market condition to me feels almost identical to if I was going to pick a time in history, it would be March two thousand, the 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 tail end of the first dot com boom when valuations in in a tiny part of the market become just unsustainably extraordinarily gargantuan. You know, just off the scale, and then they and then they collapse. So it strikes me that I mean, I appreciate that this is we're going slightly off tangent because we're talking about stocks rather than rather than precious metals. But the the level of overvaluation of a tiny fraction of stocks, let's call them the fangs, the so-called fangs, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, Netflix, and Google. They are so at odds with everything else that's happening in the economy and the rest of the stock market in the U.S. and the rest of markets everywhere else in the world. It's like it's like the ship has gone down. And there's like half a dozen survivors that are bobbing above the water, but even they're not going to last forever. The the mismatch between valuations there and valuations and everything else just seem unbelievable to me. Oh, I, I agree with you completely. Hasn't the market, you know, the markets here in the U.S. are led by just five or six or seven companies that are showing real gains and the rest are underwater. And that's not my area of expertise, but that's my general observation. And I think it goes back to your comment a few minutes ago about Apple. Everybody has a smartphone today, right? And what's what's it all made us? Short attention span, you know, theater. That's what we have. No one's doing real homework anymore, real drilling down. We're all paying attention to headlines. You know, before when information wasn't so easy at your fingertips, people really had to work to get the, the right information which meant they put they did their due diligence. Now we just look at headlines. So that would lead to me the general um, public's 
Oh, which word I want to say? Distraction, I, I would say. Yeah, yeah. They're distracted and they're too too focused on things that don't matter about anything in the real life. It's like we all have watching television all the time now. Yeah. And there's some very. And we're not learning, really learning anymore. Well, that that's true because um, it's it's almost like to to learn you have to you have to actually shut yourself off from quite a lot of noise. And it's hard to do that. Um, if you've got a if you've got a phone, you'll be pinged all throughout the day with messages, which are messages from friends and family. On top of that, it's messages from you know whatever sort of uh, you know Netflix company or whatever it might be that something else has come out. Um, plus news headlines, plus all the social or unsocial media platforms, if you want to call them that. So we are drawn into it. It, in a way that it's almost impossible without completely turning off your phone. And um, it does make it hard to concentrate your mind on something, um, which is why I love doing these long form pod podcasts, because it's it, you can get to the the heart of the matter of, of uh, you know, working out you know, complex issues. And even if you don't agree with the person you're talking to, you get the time to discuss it and to, to actually think about it. But you're, you're absolutely right about that. And um, the, the whole area of um, numismatic coins, I'm absolutely fascinated by that, that you, that you, that you learned um, all about that. How did you learn um, to, to, you know, to spot a fake, for example, and how would you know, um, I'm guessing there must be a scientific way of telling that a bar of gold isn't covered in, you know, lead covered in a a uh, veneer of gold due to its weight. So there must be a way of knowing that. But you know, there are people out there who who buy their coins on eBay, and I think that's a very dangerous thing to do. I think you've got to know your coin dealer. H how does an expert spot things without giving any, any trade secrets away? Well, uh, that's a, that's a broad question. So, a couple, uh, give me a couple moments here to to go through that. Number one, I learned by doing. Uh, I was taught, you know, mentored uh, by people that uh, you know spent a lot of time with me explaining why a coin was, you know, the surface condition of the coin was this or that. Uh, and this was before those independent grading services came up. So when I used to go to coin shows. We didn't really grade the coins by condition. We just priced them dealer to dealer. And my uh, my mentors would tell me, okay, go spend $5,000, buy coins, and I'd bring them back to our table at the coin show. And then they'd go through them. And then they'd tell me, okay, now go sell them. Oh, wow. And if I lost more than about 10%, that's when I knew I made a mistake. I missed something. So that's really the school of hard knocks. And I learned by doing. Now, you know, about five years later, the grading services came uh, came to be, uh, and they took that part of the learning curve out. So there's a lot of coin dealers today that don't know how to grade coins outside of the independent grading services. So I'm a, I'm old school that way. Now, if you look at enough coins over time, you can just tell by the appearance of the surfaces, the shimmer, the mint luster the detail of the design elements, that something's not right. Counterfeits tend to be a little mushy. The color tends to be a little off. And I remember, you know, when I first encountered some modest counterfeits back in the day, I'd, I'd ask my mentor, why is this one? Why is this one bad? He goes, it just looks funny to me. It's sometimes it's just really hard to say specifically. So coins that are made by a mint 
that are struck with dyes have unique characteristics about them that if you look at enough of them, you can just tell that this one was made by a real professional press and this one was made by a mold or this one was altered. You know, sometimes we get a, a common date uh, and then a rare date for the same year, but the, the rare date has a mint mark that the common date doesn't have. So sometimes we see added mint marks. So you mm. tend to look at where the mint mark position is. So we have reference books that, you know, go back to everything the U.S. Mint made, all the dye pairings, you know, the different states of the dyes. So there, there's a lot of reference materials you can refer to if you have questions. And now we have a database of known counterfeits as well. But we are having problems, a modest but growing problem with um, spurious precious metals, bullion items coming in to the U.S. and other countries out of China. All of the mints around the world that make the modern gold and silver bullion coins like the U.S. Mint, the Canadian Mint, the Austrian Mint, uh, the British Royal Mint have all added additional tiny little design elements into their bullion products to make it harder for the Chinese to replicate them. And um, it's adding a, a, a level of comfort to the public. But the, the reality is most of the public would never be able to distinguish a spurious item from a real one. That's why you really need a trusted, long-standing member of the community, a professional who's done this for years to be your dealer. Because you're right, online auction platforms and private sale uh, forums are rife with spurious merchandise that looks pretty good, but it's not. And you think you're getting a deal, but well, you're really just getting ripped off. Now, we do have ways to test metal to see whether it's tungsten that's plated with gold, which is a classic way that the Chinese are counterfeiting gold bars because tungsten has a density uh, that is very close to gold. So the, des the design of a bar is plain. It's easy to replicate the look of the design, but the dimensions of the bar are always a little bit different. They may be the right length and height, but the width is always a little thicker. So these are the things we look for. And we have testing devices that we, that we, as professionals, we can buy that are expensive that the layman or the public, you know, it's not affordable for them. So maintaining the integrity of the product has been a bit of a challenge over the last five or 10 years because of this, this problem. In fact, when I was president of the Professional Numismatist Guild, which is the leading organization of rare coin dealers here in the United States, uh, in 2016, this problem came to us and I conceived of and helped to establish the industry anti-counterfeiting task force that has grown to work with uh, professional numismatist guild members all over the country, the secret service and homeland security to interdict shipments coming into the US and identify them as fraudulent. And then we have a numismatic crime information center that helps to go after the bad guys and you know seize the merchandise and, and get people through the judicial system to prosecute them. But the fact is the stuff's coming in from China and there's nothing we can do to stop it. We can just slow it down and try and make the public aware of it. But that's why it's really important that you do do business with a longstanding member of the community who knows what they're doing. You must have some stories to tell. <laughs> 
I do. <laughs> <laughs> now, you I, may I, need to take some of this offline, I suspect. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But no, that is just incredible. I, I didn't know that. That's um, so. If somebody, you've got obviously got your your business, um, America Old, um, uh, which we will put a link to, obviously in the show notes. And um, if somebody is trying to buy and sell gold, and they want to know a trusted place to do it. Is there a kind of seal of approval that they can look for? Is there something that that can tell them that they're independently sort of registered or some something like that? That um, what they're but apart from obviously the history and actually being able to go and speak to somebody and having um, having a discussion with somebody who's knowledgeable like yourself. How, how else could they do that from, from just by doing their own research before they actually buy something? Well, the uh, the problem with our industry is we're unregulated. So anybody can be a precious metals dealer or a rare coin dealer tomorrow if they want to be. No and way. No way. Yeah, that's true. Here in the U.S., that's the way it is. Oh, my God. And it, when we get but into to be a, fair, To be fair, anyone in the States can be president, as, we, as we've now discovered. So <laughs> I won't touch that one. <laughs> but... But it's true. Anybody can be a precious metals dealer. And when we go through these, you know, our markets tend to be kind of feast and famine. So when we go through these famine phases, we tend to weed out the people who are opportunists who come into the marketplace. But when we get into better markets where the public really wants to get involved, then the opportunists tend to pop up. And we see two problems. The, the great, the much greater problem are companies that just simply charge too much, way overpriced. And they get a you know famous aging actor or financial celebrity to be their spokesperson on television, and they get people's trust by selling the common bullion items that we specialize in uh, at common prices. But once they gain their trust, they start to sell them scarcer stuff or harder to find merchandise at exorbitant prices. So aggressive pricing tends to be one problem. Counterfeits don't tend to be a big problem, but it's it's they're out there. So if people want to buy physical precious metals or vintage coins, you know the 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 tool that everyone has at their ease of fingertips today is the internet. Just do your due diligence. Look for people that have been in the business a long time. Like I said, I'm a professional numismatist guild member PNG. We have about 350 active PNG members in the country today. We have to be voted into the organization. We have to have financial wherewithal. And most importantly, we have to agree to binding arbitration. So if you and I were to have a dispute over pricing or or genuine quality of the merchandise, instead of taking me as the dealer to court, you could take me in front of a jury of my peers who would make a decision that's based on what is right to protect the industry and to protect the clients. So PNG members tend to, be, to police themselves because this is our livelihood. You know, we've been doing this for decades in many cases where some businesses have been in business for four or five years. So you look for reviews, uh, you look for complaints, you look for longevity, uh, and you look for referrals. Who else has done business with this company? You know, our business is based on repeat business and referrals. And you, you earn that by treating people well, giving them fair prices, giving them good advice, you know, genuinely trying to help people, which is how my business has been built up over the last 25 years. 
And there's a lot of very generic websites out there that when you try and drill down, who are the people behind it? You know, it says nothing, but, you know, our customers are our most important asset. And there's not even an, a really an address that you can check on. So you really need to do your due diligence, but it's easier now than it's ever been. And if you really see any complaints whatsoever, especially multiple complaints, just find another person or another dealer to do business with. There's many good choices out there, but the, the way to sidestep most of the potential problems are to search out professional numismatist guild members. We tend to be the leaders in the industry uh, with longstanding businesses and uh, experience and trust. And physical premises, would you say, is that important? Well, we're a national mail order business. So we have an office in Austin, Texas. We don't have a coin shop like you can walk in and look over the counter and stuff. We, I never wanted to, to do that. And this is part of the teaching that I learned from Jim Blanchard back in the 80s, that this is a good business model. Um, so physical location really doesn't matter that much. It's more the reputation of the dealer. But we do a lot of local business with people by appointment. So that that helps as well. But you know, you can do business with a pawn shop physically. And the people in pawn shops, they don't know if they're getting a counterfeit item or not. It looks good to them. And I've had clients go into pawn shops and think they're getting a deal. And they've ended up getting, you know, a lot less than they paid for by by either getting something that was overrated for quality or, uh, you know, a spurious item. Right. And um, one of the, was it one of the American Eagle coins? is Was it... Um, was it 1930s that was the, the, the one? <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I've got a vague memory of that, um, but you're going to have to tell me. that Those are the valuable ones. Have you ever actually got your hands on one of them? Yes. Yes, I have. So uh, do you have a moment for the story? Please. Love, to, right, so love for you to tell it. This is truly an incredible story. So the U.S. Ha has made $20 gold coins that have about an ounce of gold in them, just a hair less to equal their face value of $20 when the gold price was $20.67 an ounce fixed internationally from 1850 to 1933, the US minted $20 gold coins. Not all years, but almost every year. So we go into the roaring 20s, the Wall Street crash of 1929, and the financial depression of the early 30s. Franklin Roosevelt becomes president in February or January, February of 1933. During the spring of 1933, the U.S. Mint made $445,000 $20 gold coins dated 1933, but they never left the Philadelphia Mint and were placed into the banking system. So there was a jeweler in Philadelphia at the time who went down to the Mint and got one of the employees, this is what we suspect, got one of the employees to swap out 20 of these, or 40 of these older $20 gold coins minted prior to 1933 for 1933 dated coins. So some of these coins got out of the Philadelphia Mint because when they melted them all, they had the right amount of ounces. But then, 1934, 1935, 1936, $20 gold coins started popping up into the market one or two at a time and being sold for $30, $40, $50 a coin, you know, double or more of their face value as collector pieces. 
Well, there was a young Secret Service agent back in the day who wanted to make a name for himself like J. Edgar Hoover was with the FBI. So he decided that these coins were not issued by, they were never released by the Philadelphia Mint. So they were not authorized. So he started to confiscate them. Well, King Farouk of Egypt, prior to, just prior to this, bought one from the leading numismatist of the day, Max Mel a 1933 dated saint because he was a coin collector and he wanted to make sure it was real. So he sent it to the, had Max Mel send it to the Philadelphia Mint who agreed, yes, we made this coin and a letter of authenticity went with the coin via diplomatic pouch to Egypt where it rested in King Farouk's collection for decades. Well, he died and the coin was sold to a dealer in London who was going to sell it under the table to a dealer here in the U.S. in 1999 at a coin show for a million dollars. And it turned out that the U.S. dealer's client was really the Secret Service. They were trying to, to suss out one of these coins. And they confiscated King Farouk's pedigreed 1933 saint. Well, the dealer in London said, hey, U.S. government, you already said this one was okay to own. You sent it by diplomatic pouch to Egypt. So please, can I have my coin back? Well, over about a five or six year period of uh, lawsuits, the U.S. government finally agreed that, yes, we'll make this coin legal to own. We'll sell it at auction. Only we'll split the profits. So the dealer in London got half of the money that the coin auction for and the U.S. government got the other half. But this was then the only 1933 $20 gold coin that was legal to own. And it sold for almost $8 million in 2007 to Stuart Weitzman, who was the, the shoe manufacturer here in the U.S. who made ladies high-end shoes. Uh, it sold again two years ago for almost $19 million. Wow. Same coin. So, a it's slight premium, so a slight premium to its face value then. <laughs> Right. So it's the only 1933 $20 gold coin that is allowed to be owned legally. If you now here's the sidebar. When this was negotiated and the coin was sold back in 2007, Ira Swift, the jeweler in Philadelphia, his daughter or niece, her lawyer approached the government and said, well, what what would happen if somebody else had 10 more of these 1933 $20 gold coins? And the U.S. government said, well, let's see them. And they pulled them out of a safe deposit box and showed them to the U.S. government that promptly confiscated them. <laughs> wow. And I've seen those 10 coins all in a plaque at the major summer coin show uh, on display. But that could solve the debt crisis because you just have one of those and then reprice <laughs> it at like $30 trillion. <laughs> well, that's one way to do it. Uh, or make more, make each of them $3 trillion and there's 10 of them. <laughs> that's a brilliant story. I, I, I'd, um, I'd heard something about it, but I hadn't had it explained that well. So thank you for doing that. And, and that yeah. actually brings us on to the point of, do you think that we should go back to the gold standard. Do you think that's the way to, to solve the problem? Because um, we've got an intractable problem here. Um, it's good. The markets are going to solve it one way or the other, but whether it's a long-term solution um, with whatever's coming, I, I just don't know. Well, you know, the, the, 
the, the scale of the financial system has gone off the track to the high side and the amount of debt that we have. So if we were to back currencies with gold again, it would put the gold prices estimated you know, north of $10,000 an ounce. That's how much, uh, how, how big the financial system is relative to the known ounces of gold out there. And I suppose it depends on how much you want it to be reserved, which is sort of an open question. Right. So whether you partially back it or fully back it, it's basically impractical to do based on the amount of you know dollars out there versus the amount of gold out there. Now we have China and Russia saying that they want to introduce a BRICS gold-backed currency in August at the during their uh, BRICS you know summit meeting, where another fifty or sixty countries, in addition to the original five BRICS countries are applying for membership in the BRICS organization. So there, this is part of the de-dollarization. This is the de-dollarization uh, movement that's in progress. But we don't know any of the details yet. So it's possible that we might see you know, an attempt at, an, at a currency that's multinational like the euro, that's partially backed by gold, that's traded amongst the BRICS nations, whether it'll be an internal currency or an external currency. We don't know any of the details. Now, remember, it took, how long did it take for the euro to be launched after conception? Over 20 years? Y'all never never really launched. Failure to launch. <laughs> Failure to launch. Very good. So, um, you know, I have a hard time thinking that they'll just pull this out of their hat, you know, next month. Uh, but China has been accumulating gold at a record pace for the last 10 or 12 years. Whatever's mined in China stays in China. They're only import gold. We know what they've imported as a country. We don't know what the Chinese government holds as reserve uh, status. You know, their official figures are about 2,500 tons. But it's probably way way higher than that. Oh, yeah. We think the numbers are 15,000 to 25,000 tons, potentially two to three times the amount of gold that the U.S. has. And if the Chinese want to back the yuan with gold or either partially or fully, they're working towards that. In fact, you can take yuan now and exchange them for gold at the Shanghai uh, Gold Exchange. Have you, have you, have you sorry to interrupt, Dan, have you seen the film uh, Monty Python's Life of Brian? <laughs> of course. <laughs> so I'm thinking, uh, for some reason, there's this acute mental image of, are there any women here? No, 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 no. Are there any, are there any, Potential BRICS countries here. No, 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 no. Half the world, all the world is going to end up being part of the BRICS. There's only America that this is left outside it. Exactly. And if you look at the a map of the G7 nations and then look at a map of the BRICS countries that either are BRICS countries or want to be, it's really an east-west split. But what's breaking my heart, literally, is that Mexico wants to be a BRIC nation. And the US does the majority of its trading with Mexico and with Canada because of our geographical locations. And Mexico wants to be a BRICS nation. So when you have Mexico wanting to join the BRICS and Saudi Arabia you know, pivoting towards China as the primary customer for their oil sales, these are it's major- game, it's game yeah, over, it's game over, isn't yeah. it? Exactly. And the sad state of the affairs here in the U.S. is that most of the people don't see this coming and they'll be clobbered over the head like a baby seal 
when this actually does happen. And it's it's slowly the ball's rolling now, just whether it'll, you know, how fast did the US dollar lose world reserve currency status? Well, slowly, 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 and then all at once. Then all at once. So we may be fast approaching that all at once period. It's gonna be really hard to say, but China has been putting the infrastructure in place for this to for this kind of a thing to happen for 10 years slowly so it could it could ramp up much more quickly now that we've given the world uh, a reason to sh- to shun the dollar because of our financial sanctions against Russia taking them off the Swiss banking system following the invasion of the Ukraine which is horrible of course but that's the way the world works and Russia's getting around most of our sanctions anyway now so India is going to be a key how what they do, but they're buying oil from Russia right now, right? So the world is changing and changing materially right before our eyes as we speak. Well, as as Brits, I think we can we can sort of concede that the sort of passing the baton of sort of end of empire is a painful painful process. The thing yeah, that the thing that the thing that looms looms large in my mind is. That the the people of the world and the people of the West are being extremely poorly served by their dinosaur media and not reporting any of this stuff. Oh my God, you're you're right. Now, last August, Saudi Arabia and Russia signed a, a joint military agreement where they would, you know, help to service each other militarily after we left Afghanistan. I think the timing was just coincidental, but the fact that we left Afghanistan badly, and a week later, this announcement was made, uh, was material. I mean, obviously, it takes a while for these things to be done. But one of my colleagues reported this, and I went to, to find corroboration of it in the U.S. media. And for two months, I could not find a story about it. Not one in the U.S. media. And then finally, at the beginning of the year, you started to see reporting from other countries. And I don't know whether it's algorithms with Google, you know, keeping it out or whatever, but you're right. Our media is doing a horrible job telling us the truth, the real story, while they're helping everybody to sell their soap. It's just, it's incredulous to me. Having grown up in a day when Walter Cronkite was someone we could actually trust in the media. And today, you know, everybody wants a shock headline for a click. It's just sad. It's the saddest state of affairs I've ever seen. And it's a symbol of a waning power. I've, I've heard that there's a supply issue with um, the, the, the price that you see on, on the screen for, for gold and the actual price that you actually pay to get physically get it are two different things. Is, is, is that what you're seeing? Well, we... we the, the spot price of gold is based on the contract price for the futures contracts on the COMEX exchange in the U.S. and other uh, financial exchanges around the world uh, for contracts. Now, 95 to 97 percent of the buying and selling of contracts never end up in delivery. It's just a way for dealers to either speculate or hedge. So I hedge my inventory the same way that speculators will go long or short by buying or selling contracts. Now, we have seen periods of extreme physical demand around the world. Following the great financial crisis of 2008, there was a huge run on physical gold. We saw it again when our debt exploded following COVID. Uh, We had another run when uh, 
inflation ramped its head up in 2021. And then when the bank failures came in March of this year, we had another one. So getting enough physical product from the various manufacturers, the refineries that make bars or the mints that make sovereign minted one ounce coins, which are really just round bars struck by a sovereign mint. There's been a supply and demand imbalance that has led to inordinately high premiums for physical ounces when demand has been in its extreme phases. So, you know, for a point in time, U.S. gold eagles by the U.S. Mint were trading dealer to dealer at about 10% over their gold value uh, during the post-COVID period because the U.S. Mint simply couldn't make enough gold one-ounce eagles fast enough. Now, the Royal Canadian Mint, the Australian Mint, the Austrian Mint, the British Royal Mint, they tend to keep pace a little bit better and the demand for their products is a little lower. So premiums on those, while up, were not as high, but normal premium would be 4 or 5%. So that, that would make an inequity of, of a disparity, rather, between the physical ounce price or the street price for a physical ounce versus the paper price on a computer for a COMEX-traded uh, contract. Now, we've seen it even worse in Silver Eagles because the U.S. Mint can only make about a, a million one-ounce Silver Eagles a month because they don't make their own blanks. The discs that the coins are made on, they, they rely on one manufacturer to supply them with the discs, where in past times they've had two or three manufacturers of the blanks that the coins are struck on to supply just, them. Just out of interest, which is that manufacturer? I believe it's the Sunshine Mint. Okay. Right? So we've seen premiums on Silver Eagles for the last two years go as high as $15 an ounce over the silver price. That's more wow. than 50% over the intrinsic value of the metal, which is crazy. So we have used that high premium as a negative seller to sell more uh, appropriately premiumed metal, uh, either bars or other sovereign minted silver products like the silver maple leaf, the Austrian silver philharmonic, the British silver Britannia. Now, we've gone through a demand phase that has just weakened dramatically over the last couple of months. And premiums on silver eagles have literally fallen about $5 per ounce dealer to dealer in the last two weeks. So premiums are finally collapsing back down to close to normal for silver eagles, and they are normal for many other silver products right now, and very competitive. You know, so when you have a commodity and it's scarce, you can get more for that commodity. And if a, if a business like a mint distributor is used to selling a million units, and suddenly they have 250,000 units a month to sell, well, they're going to try and get three or four times more for that same unit to make their profitability the same. Right. So now we're going in the opposite direction. We're seeing that the supplies have caught back up and it's a very competitive market. And when we don't sell something, the really the only thing we can do, because they're all equal, they're all exactly the same, is lower the premium to try and make them more attractive. But it's kind of it's kind of strange when premiums are high, the public really wants them. And when premiums are low, the public doesn't. And that's just a sign of demand versus supply or supply versus demand. Well, that's really interesting because the price of silver has just shot up as well. So, but obviously it's gone with gold. 
Right. But what's happened over the last two weeks that hadn't happened before, the dollar's starting to show a real breakdown. Absolutely. Right. At a support level that you all follow, as you obviously said earlier. So a weaker dollar or lower interest rates will give gold and silver a tailwind. Gold has caught about a $40 bid over the last week and a half for that reason. And silver's caught a $2 bid, which is a 2% gain for gold and a 10% or an 8% gain for silver. And that shows you how when silver plays catch up, it can really play catch up pretty hard. And, but I think there's a lot more in, st- in store for this simply because we've got interest rates and bond yields at the highest level they've been at it 20 years. And when we get into a real global economic slowdown, which we're entering, China's weak, Europe's weak, which the Germany is in a recession, right? They're the economic engine of Europe. I'm not sure Europe ever really recovered, to be honest. No, they haven't. But the last time we went through this, it was mild in 2018. And what happened? 2019, the Fed cut rates from 2.5% all the way down to zero when COVID hit. But now we're starting at 5.5%. I think I think it would be in everyone's benefit if the Fed could be a bit more erratic with regard to monetary policy. <laughs> you know, they've created three policy errors in a row. They they under they overstimulated for COVID. They they underappreciated inflation, and now they're playing catch up. And, and you know, the, the lag effect is we're still waiting to be to, to fully feel that. So, here's the question: do you, do you think Jay Powell could be the last Fed governor? Uh. Well, because he will be the last governor because the Fed will be disbanded because it shouldn't really be allowed to exist in the first place. Well, you know, there's no government institution that that becomes comes into existence that ever disappears. Are just but, it, but it's but it's not a government institution. It's a private banking cartel, as as we know. I know, but but it's basically a quasi government institution. It's I I think that the what's going to happen is the dollar will lose um, market share. There'll be more and more competition. And I really think what could happen is when the digital dollar is launched, which we know it's coming, it won't be accepted. The world will shun it. I think that's entirely possible now. And I didn't think this a month ago, but I think that it's very possible now. That'll, which, be, a, that'll be a bit of pill to swallow if you happen to be a, a member of the establishment, won't it? Exactly. Exactly, because there there there'll be more and more uh, uh, other choices. And so the real rub with world trade is how do you settle the excess currency that one country accumulates when they do bilateral trade? The difference between what I sold you and you sold me. If you sell me ten percent more, well then I've got ten percent of your currency lying around. What do I do with it? You know, and everybody's always settled in dollars. Now we're the world's going to figure out a way to settle either currency to currency in commodities or perhaps in gold-backed currencies. And once they get that figured out, the ability of the dollar to survive as the world's reserve currency will, will plummet, I, I believe, because the world's heading that way very quickly now. And then it really won't matter so much what the Fed does. The great disappointment for me was always that William Shatner promised to launch Shatcoin during the, the giddy days of the, the early rise of crypto. And to my knowledge, Shatcoin was never released, but I think we, we could yet see Shatcoin <laughs> in one well, form or another. <laughs> Dogecoin. Yeah. <laughs> well, dog you, money, dog you, money. You, you've, let, you've let the crypto cat out, out of the bag, Tim, so you know I have to ask the question. I know. It was an effortless baton pass to you. Absolutely. So... 
what, what do you do you have an opinion on cryptocurrencies yeah absolutely they're here to stay they've you know bitcoin has survived uh it had a huge speculative run which drew drew a lot of people in uh especially the younger crowd 40 and under you know my clientele tends to be a little older than 40 or older than that and i have a really hard time attracting the younger crowd into precious metals because everybody has a phone and what can you do on your phone you can trade bitcoin you can trade ethereum or 2,000 or 3,000 other digital currencies. And the governments are gonna have their own digital currency. So crypto is here to stay and the blockchain technology is gonna revolutionize uh, how we trade things. You know, in real estate, you know, we're gonna see um, uh, titles attached to homes via blockchain. And hopefully all the title companies will go away because you know, I've had three houses here in Austin, Texas over the last 20 years as I've moved around a little bit, I bought each house from the first owner. Why do I need a title on that property, right? Why do I need to pay $10,000 to get a title insurance policy when we know who built it and who owned it first? So that's coming. Um, are you, are you forced to do that in America? Sorry to cut in. Yeah, yeah. Titles, title insurance is important here. So but, if there's ever a dispute when the next sale comes. But but back to crypto, what, what crypto is really good for, and Bitcoin especially, is moving serious money over borders, which you can't easily do with regular currencies or gold for that matter. That's really where crypto has a unique advantage. But once the government digital-backed currencies are available, they're going to try and whether they're going to regulate Bitcoin out, I don't know, but they're, they're not going to like the competition. And China certainly doesn't like their wealthy moving uh, Bitcoin out of the country, right? They put restrictions on it, as far as I know. So there's a place for Bitcoin. There's a place for crypto in the world, just like there's a place for you know, physical currencies and a place for, for gold. They, they, they all should get along in one way or the other. They all some have advantages and some have disadvantages. But crypto is here to stay and blockchain in particular will revolutionize how records are kept, whether it is you know financial transactions like a title insurance or our health insurance will go along with us via the blockchain. So that is a dynamic uh, enhancement uh, or te technological improvement that you know we're going to live with for the rest for future generations to come. And I, I was just thinking about um, just going back to how you analyze coins. And given that AI technology has improved so much, that's something that would almost be a perfect system for you to create for yourself, for example, because you could train AI using your expert eye as to what is a real coin and what isn't. And and that, that element of not not quite knowing that it's not a real coin, but you know that it's not a real coin is the sort of thing that the technology would figure out itself as well because you just train it on you know multiple instances i just wonder whether you ever thought about it ever thought about using ai to kind of replicate what you're doing or at least um take a first pass at potentially a load of coins that come in and would take you hours to go through and you could just just run it through the AI and see what it throws out and then then examine it further. Well, we haven't gotten that far with AI at, at all yet. It's just, you know, it's in its infancy uh, in many ways. Um, we have had attempts 
to have computers grade or value the uh, a coin's quality or surviving condition today uh, using digital cameras to replicate the human eye, but nothing has come close to the point that can replace humans at this point in time. Mm-hmm. So um, we haven't gotten there yet. You know, this business is, you know, vintage coins are kind of a, an old school business and modern bullion coins to that degree as well. Uh, doesn't mean it won't happen, but it hasn't happened yet even though we've had you know, computers at our backs for 25 or 30 years now and, and several really expensive attempts to try and make it work, uh, but we haven't gotten that done yet. Now, AI could add a whole new level, which might make it possible. We'll just have to see what happens, but it hasn't happened yet. I mean, the, the important thing would be that you need a lot of examples of the real and the fake. And I suppose you don't you wouldn't end up with that many examples. I'm just just kind of thinking aloud here to to train it because it it could do a good job if they if you had sort of ten thousand real coins and say two thousand fakes and then you run it just just via the pictures, it would probably work it out at a very good rate. But perhaps we're talking about such a specialist area that it doesn't have the training set in order to make a good decision. Would you say that's that's one of the problems? Yeah, well, the, the grading services, uh, the two independent grading services, the dealers trust here in the United States, the Professional Coin Grading Service and the Numismatic Guarantee Corporation, or PCGS and NGC, you know, they've kept databases of every coin that they've graded uh, over the last you know 37 years, 38 years. So we know how many survivors of each date and mint mark and denomination there are in the various quality ratings. We have a database there and they take pictures of very many of, especially the rare ones. So the the database they have of photographs has increased dramatically over the last 20 years. But here's the rub. Pictures are two-dimensional. Coins are three-dimensional. And we haven't really come up with a way to translate the three-dimensional coin into a two-dimensional useful image uh, for you know authentication and grading yet now today people that have coins that they've had you know that they inherited from their fathers their grandfathers their great-grandfathers great great grandmothers whatever they can send me a digital picture of a coin that they take with their phone for me to appraise it via the picture and i can usually come pretty close to what the quality rating is or whether it's real or not but until you hold it in your hand and really get a three-dimensional look at it, you're not going to get it exactly right. Is this something that people have to learn just from, from someone like yourself? Or is there a way of them studying it as a, as a profession with a professional qualification? Well, there's no way to really learn it properly without just doing it and getting a serious amount of repetitions under your belt. That's really the best and only true way to learn what, what, what I've learned and what younger people coming up under us, you know, old timers and in my industry is by doing. And that's by going to coin shows and just buying and selling or, or seeing a lot of coins. That's how I learned. I just got to have millions of repetitions over the last 43 years, millions of repetitions. And, you know, there's certain sounds that these coins make when people bring gold that they want to sell to me over the counter. You know, I'll sit and I'll start some small talk with them while I'm going through their product to look at it. But what I'm also doing is I'm listening to it 
what is the pitch? Because each of these coins, when they hit each other, they have a certain pitch about them that a counterfeit doesn't. You might get a ding, 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 and then a thud, <laughs> right? If it's not the right metal. And um, it doesn't happen very often, but every once in a while, something like that does happen. And that's just by doing. It's just simply by doing. So we're very old school that way. There's something absolutely lovely about the fact that this hasn't changed at all in any way, shape or form. You know, since you first started doing it, it's still done the same way and you just need an expert. I, I, I just think that's just wonderful. Job security for me. <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent stuff. Um, well, I think we are probably close to time. Tim, was, was there any, any final questions that you wanted to ask? No, I'm good. I'm good. Thanks, Paul. Okay, brilliant. Um, I just want to ask one final question, if I may. Um, I just w wondered, what do you think of the potential prospects of hyperinflation before we get the end of the, um, you know, the potential breakdown of the US dollar and, and then the chaos in the financial system. Do you think that that could be a step or do you think it could just happen without hyperinflation? Well, one of the problems that the de-dollarization movement could, could potentially bring is a repatriation of dollars from around the world back into the US as they so come that home. Lead, that, so that leads to a temporary boost in the value of the dollar, doesn't it? In the well, short term, in the short term. It could bring too many dollars back home, which could create inflation here in the U.S. that the rest of the world doesn't experience. That's the way I see it potentially happening. You know, it might not be hyperinflation, but if if the dollars that are outside of the U.S. start to really come home and they're not taken out of the system one way or the other, the pool of dollars here in the U.S. could grow at a greater rate relative to goods and services, creating an inflationary spiral here that's just simply driven by that, nothing else. So I think that that's possible. But when any currency fails, what do you get? You get hyperinflation before it utterly fails completely. And I do think that we are heading towards a potential for that to happen. I mean, you can't, or some kind of a devaluation. We're going to deny our older people social security benefits, health benefits, Medicare. I mean, something has to give, and it's clearly not going to be political spending. <laughs> Politicians are just going to keep agreeing to spend more and more. So there's no discipline there. So something else is going to have to give. And what it's going to mean is the living standard of people here in the U.S. and probably around the world is going to continue to deteriorate uh, because of that, one way or another. And whether that's inflation or hyperinflation, and when that transition happens, you know, that's anybody's guess. But the potential for that is much, much higher now than it has ever been in my lifetime. And it really bothers me because I have a young daughter at home. I'm an older guy, but I got a young daughter and a young son at home. And uh, I worry about their future. Seriously. Yeah, I, I, I can't remember. We had a guest on the podcast. I think it may have been Roddy Sturfley from Incrementum who was saying, uh, but I'm sorry if it wasn't, um, but he was saying, that if you go back to the 50s and 60s, you, you could have sort of everything that you wanted on one breadwinner's income. And now, whilst we seem to have more of everything and everything's so much, inverted commas, better, it's a struggle 
to sort of keep keep up with the cost of everything, even with you know two salaries and the way prices are going up for everything, especially obviously you know we talk about property and there's a good reason for that, but we can't get into that right now. But it but it is a it is um it's an insidious thing that happens with inflation that that you you kind of don't notice it in the short term but in the long term as i i've been educated by you know tim always talking about it and and tim's study of austrian economics which you know sparked my interest in it it's always there and it's the the one thing that stays stable with within everything is always the price of gold and and um and its relation to everything else so everything else is going down and it's staying stable and it's also really interesting what you're saying about these BRIC countries that if they are going to try and create a some some form of collective, it's still got to be linked back to something that people find tangible and it's always gold. Um, and it but it's really not talked about. It's not talked about enough in the in the main press. Um, it, it's it's you can hear about everything else, but we don't hear about precious metals. Right. So let me leave you with two thoughts. So inflation. We had what eight nine years of two percent inflation. You really don't feel that, right? When you go to the grocery store, a loaf of bread goes from a dollar thirty for a loaf of bread to a dollar forty. You don't really feel that. But when inflation goes to eight nine ten percent or more, in many aspects more, yeah, you feel it because that two hundred dollar a month or a week grocery bill goes to two fifty or three hundred. Yeah, you really feel it. And we've all gone through that over the last year year and a half two years. You know, in Austin, Texas. A steak that I like to eat, you know, used to cost me $20 at the grocery store. Now it's $30. Well, inflation's going to fall. So that steak might just be $31 next year, but it's not going back to 20. Mm. Right. Mm. So that's inflation that we can all feel it. So that's a lesson for everyone. Now I hold in my hand, and I know your your listeners cannot see this, but it's a 1964 quarter that the US made. What it is is the last silver quarter. The U.S. Mint made the very next year. They took the silver out of the currency and made the copper nickel coin, which has the copper nickel edge, like we all see in all our currencies today around the world. In 1964, this silver quarter buy a gallon of gas. In 1965, that copper nickel quarter would buy you a gallon of gas. Today, that copper nickel quarter will buy you less than a tenth of an ounce. Uh, less than a tenth of a gallon of gas, excuse me. While this silver quarter from 1964 today will buy you a gallon and a half of gas. That shows how silver has held its purchasing power over the last 50 years in a coin that many of us saw, you know, when it was available in our lifetimes. That's absolutely brilliant. Now, just one final thing before you go. Something that we do uh, on this podcast, just to end things, is something we call media picks, which is um, it, it's just to uh, just for a bit of fun. We like to share something that we absolutely love or absolutely hate to, to say, you know, you shouldn't see it or to avoid it. it could, I should have told you about it before. I'm really sorry to drop you in this, but, but it's either a book, a film. It can be financial, but it doesn't have to be. It could just be anything. It could be a podcast. It could be, if, if you were to, if we were having a drink at a bar, which I would have absolutely loved to be doing uh, right now, um, having a chat about this um, for hours. Um, and we'd say, oh, have you seen this? And you, you'd share it as a recommendation. So I'm just going to ask Tim for Tim's, 
questions and then I'll come back to you just to give you a moment to have a think. Um, but Tim, what, what have you got for us this week? So I was going to go with, I was watching Dunkirk, Christopher Nolan's Dunkirk again at the, at the weekend, which is just unbelievably good. Possibly, I think it's his best film. There's a 27 film Dunkirk. Uh, but in the light of our conversation, I was having a, a sort of a, a pivot midstream. So I'm actually going to have as my main recommendation a book that I dare say Dana's already got, which is, uh, it was republished comparatively recently. It's a book called When Money Dies by Adam Ferguson, The Nightmare of the Weimar Hyperinflation. So you, you preempted me, Paul, with your last question. Ah, fantastic. So when money dies, that that's brilliant. Now, Daniel, I've just seen you've just got up and picked up a book. So yours is obviously going to be a book, um, unless I'm wrong, of course. So what, what have you, what have you got for us? Well, uh, a, a book that I found recently uh, that I love is called Three Days at Camp David" by Jeffrey Garton, and it is the story of Richard Nixon's. Camp David Conclave in August of 1971, where the decision was made to take the U.S. off of the gold standard following the Bretton Woods uh, 1945 agreement, which made the dollar the world's reserve currency backed by gold. In 1971, uh, Nixon was forced to take the U.S. off of the gold standard for a host of reasons. During, anyway, an, during a, an episode of Bonanza. <laughs> That's exactly right. That's exactly right. But the reason I like this book, Three Days at Camp David, is because it's written by a, a gentleman who understands both the uh, the macro and the micro picture, and he explains both really, really well. The first 30 or 40 pages of the book explain perfectly how the financial system used to work and why it broke why we were forced to take the U.S. off of the gold peg and to value the dollar 10%. You know, currencies used to be pegged. They didn't used to free float. Gold used to be pegged. It didn't used to free float. And then over the, the three days of, of Camp David and all the negotiations they went through, that's kind of minutia that most people find a little boring. But after the announcement was made, the U.S. had to go lobby the rest of the world to go along with the decision that we made. And that is also fascinating, the process that our Treasury Secretary and uh, our Fed Chair you know, had to do to convince the world, hey, this is how it's gonna work, and how currencies came to float against each other you know, and created free markets that we never had before. So I, that's one of the reasons I like this book, especially because the, the first 30, 40 pages is a real tutorial on how markets work and why they didn't work at a point in time and things had to change. That's absolutely brilliant. Um, one of the first things that you, you were saying that you, you were going, you were going to study psychology, I think you said, unless I was, <laughs> and did you ever study any psychology and did, did you find that interesting? Because my, my pick is um, jury, a series called Jury Duty. And it's a very interesting psychological um, experiment where the uh, basically you've got a juror who attends jury service, service but he's um, completely unaware that um, everything is the, the entire case is fake, and so everybody else is is uh, you know actors and and he doesn't know that, and it's just it's just so interesting. Um, so I think it's a very interesting psychological experiment. 
Um, but I find that people who are interested in markets are very much interested in psychology as well, because markets are so psychological and that those patterns of buying that you were saying that go on with the public and gold, I think that's just such brilliant information. So interesting. Right. No, exactly. And it, the human condition is fascinating and it's endlessly fascinating. You know, my, my favorite reality TV show is the U S presidential election cycle. (laughs) 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 If I can add that to the list, because that is really where, you know, it's crazy because we don't have good choices. Uh, Someone you think is a shoe in suddenly they're out and we always like something new and shiny and here in the U.S., we tend to have an electorate now that, you know, we crash into the left guardrail one cycle, we crash into the right guard cycle the next, you know, the next election. You know, we used to have 20, 25 year periods where the Republicans controlled the government, then the Democrats controlled the government. Now we don't have any pattern that we just knee jerk left and right. And it's just the human condition will always be amazing. So, yeah, I. Am I disappointed I didn't follow through with my psychology degree? In some ways, yes, but I, I've had you, a fascinating You, didn't, you did in your career, though. That's the thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, Dana, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been so interesting. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, just before you go, could you let the listeners know where they can find you, uh, your website, your handles, everything else? Yeah, so our, our company is American Gold Exchange. We're located out of Austin, Texas. Our website is... A-M-E-R-G-O-L-D, Amerigold.com. Our email address is info, I-N-F-O, at Amerigold.com. We have a Facebook page. We have a LinkedIn page. Um, We're a little behind on social media because, like I said, I'm old school. But we're catching up. So we'll have other handles in the future. That's where we are now. Absolutely brilliant. Thank you once again for your time. It's been a real pleasure. I hope to have you back. Well, Paul, Tim, thank you so much for having me. It has been fascinating chatting with you and I really appreciate the opportunity. Cheers, Dana. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.